Welcome back to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a 21st century look at 12-step life. Now, with more bite and less dogma. Standing. Is everyone heard in Alcoholics Anonymous? What happens if you have your standing taken away and you don't have a voice? We're going to talk about a changing demographic in Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, give a larger thought to how that might impact our 12-step culture as a whole. Who is more contemptible than he who scorns knowledge of himself? John Ralston Saul, he's a commentator on the relationships between citizenship, individualism, and the public good. He argues that Western society as a whole suffers from a fear of reality and a weakness for ideology. As a way of describing our mental state when we were in the heart of addiction, AA members would be apt to describe ourselves as less in reality and more in delusion. Today, let's ask if AA as an organization ought not be mindful of our balancing act between reality and ideology. Are we as a fellowship losing touch with our own consciousness? In his lectures and book, The Unconscious Civilization, John Ralston Saul suggests that John Salisbury would give a nod to the adaptation of his quote, putting it this way, What is more contemptible than a society that scorns knowledge of itself? For those who fashion ourselves as stewards of the 12-step, 12-tradition way of life, here's a question that relates to AA reality and ideology. Is AA a fellowship with a manual, or is AA a book-based society? Are we a fellowship, or are we a program? While we might want to retreat to the non-committal, aren't we both? Let's look first at our traditions. Do these 12 principles define and defend a fellowship or a program? The answer is apparent. Unity, membership requirements, how we govern our groups, how these groups relate to each other, how we cooperate with society as a whole, why anonymity. These tenets describe a fellowship. One tradition, Tradition 5, reminds us to relate our message to the still-suffering alcoholic. We are a fellowship. This reality is lost in a certain current vernacular. When I joined the program, dot, dot, dot. This is said all the time. And to many, this is our collective reality. In fact, we joined a fellowship, not a program. Many of us applied a suggested program, but there's no program to join. Am I splitting hairs? I don't think so. I think this is a fundamental explanation of some of the dogmatic tendencies in AA today. If we were a book-based society, and we're not, then the book would be sacred. This sacred book could not be changed, nor should the words inside be liberally interpreted. While this is a knee-jerk reaction to many in the membership, the big book itself discourages us from this type of dogma, not once, but twice. The wording was, of course, quite optional, so long as we voiced the idea without reservation. That's page 63. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize that we know only a little. This is as we conclude on page 164. 
For comparison's sake, let's liken ourselves to a society of grade 5 math teachers. Since the late 1930s, the principles of math as it applies to grade 5 hasn't changed dramatically. Are we using the same textbooks to teach our children? No. We found more contemporary ways to express these principles. While staying true to the same principles in grade 5 math, every generation of students gets the same or greater advantage compared to those who have come before, based on these enhancements to the way we express mathematical principles. How silly we would look if we reified the math teaching process with a textbook that was almost 80 years old, fearing that our mathematics would otherwise be watered down. If this is an unfair comparison, I'm all ears and eyes. Tell me why. Recently, I chaired a panel at the 35th Eastern Ontario Spring Conference of AA in Ottawa, Canada. This conference had something for everyone. Clancy I from Venice, California was there. A big book evangelist, Tom K. from Boston. Uh, an old-timers panel was called Sisters in Sobriety with three 40-year-plus women talking about AA. I was chairing a panel called Unity, Not Uniformity, Spiritual Variety in AA, which was comprised of atheists and agnostic members with long-term sobriety. I talked about stewardship in AA. I said, it's okay to want to be the tradition police in AA. That's a good thing. But first, we have to put in our time at the Tradition Academy. We have to learn about our history. A comic shows a couple, and one says to the other, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it, yet those who do study history are doomed to stand by helplessly while everyone else repeats it. When we study our history, we see that history does have a tendency to repeat itself. Our principles suggested that individualism is no threat to AA unity. As stated in Warranty 6 in our AA World Service Manual, much attention has been drawn to the extraordinary liberties which the AA traditions accord the individual member and his or her group. No penalty to be inflicted for nonconformity to AA principles. No member expelled from AA. Membership always at the choice of the individual. Each group to conduct its internal affairs as it wishes. It being merely requested to abstain from acts that might injure AA as a whole. And finally, that any group of alcoholics gathered together for sobriety may call themselves an AA group, provided that as a group they have no other purpose or affiliation. We AAs possess more and greater freedom than any other fellowship in the world. I listened to Ralston Saul's Massey lecture about unconscious civilization, and I wonder if AA isn't becoming an increasingly conformist society that pays only lip service to democracy and individualism. Is individualism in AA today, that being the autonomy of members and our groups, is this individualism seen as a single ambulatory center of selfishness? Selfishness is a narrower, more superficial definition of individualism than our founders might have intended. Today, do we feel bound to unify despite our differences, or do we feel obligated to conform to a uniform set of rituals? Bill Wilson seems comfortable choosing spontaneity and chaos over control and order, 
Imagine if you or I were laying the groundwork. Would we give groups and members such autonomy? While groups are asked to consider other groups or AAs as a whole, policing that request is left to the group's best judgment. Why? Bill W.'s view was Alcoholics Anonymous is self-correcting. While you can apply a theistic narrative if you wish, Bill was certain that adherence to the principles behind the steps and traditions were obligatory to a group or individual's survival. Are we obligated to submit to these steps or traditions literally as an authority from Yahweh the Creator? No. The principles, if followed, would work in accordance with any creed or worldview. Any who stray too far away, they will not have to be policed or governed. They will fall by the wayside all by themselves, based on the experience that informed our traditions. Bill W. didn't seem so concerned that any individual or group could drag the fellowship down with them. It was intolerance, not the refusal to conform, that he saw as detrimental. There's several great stories in Tradition 3 from 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. Wilson relates this story about applying rules upon AA membership. Maybe this sounds comical now. Maybe you think we old-timers were pretty intolerant. But I can tell you there was nothing funny about the situation then. We were grim because we felt our lives and homes were threatened. And that was no laughing matter. Intolerant, you say? Well... Naturally, we began to act like most everybody does when afraid. After all, isn't fear the true basis of intolerance? Yes, we were intolerant. How could we then guess that all those fears were to prove groundless? How could we know that thousands of these sometimes frightening people would make astonishing recoveries and become our greatest workers and most intimate friends? So, according to AA lore... Everyone lives happily ever after, if and when we mind our own business and we don't take ourselves too seriously. What is too serious? How about when we assume power or jurisdiction over another member? Standing. Losing your say in AA. In law, locus standi, or standing, establishes who has a voice and who does not, FreeDictionary.com defines the term as the legally protected stake or interest that an individual has in a dispute that entitles him to bring the controversy before the court to obtain judicial relief. In the book Fire and Ashes, Michael Ignatieff talked about lessons learned the hard way about how sinister the political ploy of undermining someone's standing can be. What if you no longer have a say in the political arena? Ignatieff came from a politically engaged Canadian family. His dad was active in liberal politics, and his childhood memories were all about dinnertime political debate. As a reporter, an educator, and author, Michael Ignatieff had been teaching at Harvard, where he had received his doctorate of history. Liberal insiders visited him and laid out a proposal to have him return to Canada, join the Liberal leadership race, with the intention of eventually running the country as Prime Minister. In Canada, his key adversary, Stephen Harper, was leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. They ran a smear campaign with the taglines, Michael Ignatieff, just visiting, 
and he didn't come back for you. The intended goal was not to rebuke his criticisms of how the conservatives were running the country. It attacked the man, not the message. It suggested that Ignatieff had no standing in a discussion about what was best for Canada. Swift boating is the term Ignatieff uses for undermining one's standing in the political arena. It refers to a successful attack on Democratic President nominee John Kerry and his Vietnam record. As he returned home a decorated veteran, he was critical of the U.S. conduct in the war. Kerry saw action on a swift boat up the Mekong River in Vietnam, and his anti-war ranting on Capitol Hill offended American prisoners of war and other U.S. troops and their families. This came to bear years later in his race for the presidency. There is always some truth to swift boating. Ignatieff had been out of the country for 30 years. John Kerry was critical of the Vietnam War. Does that make either man unworthy of leading their country? Well, they don't get to make their case if they lose their standing. When AA groups of agnostics and atheists are being ostracized by some of the more rigid local intergroups, the intergroup bodies assume governing power to revoke the agnostic group's standing in AA, saying they can't rebuke intergroup censoring because they forfeit their AA group status for not adhering to the same literal translation of AA steps as the majority of groups are doing. That much is true. Some agnostic groups interpret the steps in a secular, non-God way, while others don't read the steps in meetings at all. The fact, the AA truth, there is no membership requirement for the groups or individuals to strictly adhere to the steps exactly as written. Because someone says, you can't pick and choose what you like and leave out the rest, it doesn't make it true. AA doesn't grant intergroups authority over deciding who is and who is not an AA group, nor what conventional or unconventional rituals can or cannot be practiced inside the group. On the contrary, our leaders are but trusted servants they do not govern. When members are told that in order to share they have to identify as my name is Joe and I'm an alcoholic, their standing is being threatened. The requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. How we identify ourselves as addict, person in long-term recovery, alcoholic, by first name, full name, this is an individual decision. We don't have a great history with inclusivity. The first group conscience of Alcoholics Anonymous that entertained giving standing to women, AA decided no skirts. Voting to include African Americans in AA? No Negroes. The first LGBTQ groups? No sexual deviance in AA. Young people have seen their share of this type of bigotry too. I spilled more than you ever drank. What are you doing here? Almost all of us alcoholics have been denied standing just for being an alcoholic. Our word was nothing. Our reputation destroyed. Our troubles elicited no sympathy. We were Elkies. We were addicts second-class citizens. And sober, having suffered that indignity, we still dish it out to scapegoated others. 
because their beliefs or some other characteristic disqualifies them from legitimacy in our eyes. This is natural for humans. It's not them. It's each one of us. Fire and Ashes, the book, talks about the reluctant move towards wider, more inclusive standing. Ignatieff writes, America and the democracies that take inspiration from it are inching a step closer to that place glimpsed by Martin Luther King when he spoke of a distant country where people would be judged not by their characteristics, but by their character. Despite the victories that Obama has won, however, the country is still distant. Democratic societies that have outlawed discrimination nonetheless retain a complex code that still allows class, education, and citizenship to be used to deny standing and to turn citizens from friends into foes in our politics. Now that isn't new territory for Michael Ignatieff. In his life as a journalist, he was on the front lines of conflict between the Tutsis and the Hutus, those factions in Rwanda. He was there when the Croatians and Serbs from the former Yugoslavia were shooting at each other. And he was there for the pre-9-11 impact of the Taliban on Afghanistan, before many Americans could point out Afghanistan on a world map. In The Warrior's Honor, Ignatieff draws upon a more conservative political scientist, Samuel P. Huntington, to help make the point that some of these differences we're talking about are not like, well, I like the New England Patriots and you like the San Francisco 49ers, we'll just have to agree to disagree. The Clash of Civilizations by Samuel Huntington points out that it is liberal secular myopia, he argues, to think that ethnic differences are minor. Millennia of human history have shown that religion is no small difference, he asserts, but possibly the most profound difference that can exist between people. The frequency, intensity, and violence of fault-line wars are greatly enhanced by believing in different gods. Ignatiev goes on to say about the warring Serbians and Croatians, So many express surprise at the astonishing rapidity with which 50 years of ethnic coexistence was destroyed, perhaps forever. So it's one thing that we have meetings for the LGBTQ crowd, or young people or women. To be fair, AA was welcoming African Americans into our fold before Martin Luther King, and gay and lesbian groups were part of AA when sodomy was still illegal, and a dishonorable discharge awaited any gay man who came clean in the army. At least all of these special meetings of youth, gay, females, they're all agreeing with the crowd as far as the we agnostics line in the sand on page 53 of the big book goes. We could not postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? Most AAs through the ages agree on some 
Abrahamic creator of the universe or a prayer-answering, alcoholic-saving power greater than ourselves. But when God, as we understand him, is God is a myth, or I understand God to be born of fear and intolerance, then that fault line, those differences are quite another thing. The reality that many stay sober without any supernatural dependency is a reality that is, in some AA quarters, giving way to a more dogmatic, uniformed, God-conscious ideology of what AA is and has always been. Revisionist history is the foundation of this back-to-basics AA that remembers a time when everyone got sober and all the groups were harmonious. While there's nothing wrong with a literalist approach to AA, the problem comes when pluralism is abandoned and alternative paths to sobriety are dismissed as dry drunks or second-class or second-rate alternatives. So the case for denying agnostic AA groups their standing in AA is a clear case of being discriminated against. Intergroups assume a governing role and avoid rebuttal by denying the standing of the agnostic groups. Are there more subtle, systematic discriminations inside AA, or as Agnatiev puts it, a complex code that still allows class, education, and citizenship to be used to deny standing? Clues can be found in our demographics. Let's look at how USA demographics, where half of AA's membership live, have changed from 1940 to 2010. The U.S. looks very different over the last 70 years. What we call a family or household has changed. Americans are better educated. When AA started, America was 90% Caucasian, and in the 2010 survey, only 72% identified as white. The percentage of one-person homes has gone up from less than 10% to about 30%. The percentage of female-led households has doubled. People who have finished some sort of university education used to be 5% when AA started. It's now closer to 30 On the question of racial diversity, in the 2011 Triennial AA survey, we see that AA is whiter than America as a whole, of AA is Caucasian, while only 72% of America is. According to the 2011 survey by SAMHSA, of the people being treated for alcoholism, 68% are Caucasian. Looking ahead, Caucasians will not be the majority in the USA anymore. The estimated crossover is 2043. Is there something systemic in our rituals or literature that gives white-skinned AAs more standing? It's something we should look for. Where God as we understand him already doesn't fit all AAs in the same one-size-fits-all way that it did in 1940, more Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and atheists are going to enter the rooms. What would make for a more welcoming hand of AA for the newcomer of 2035 when AA celebrates 100 years? Can we adapt? Will we adapt? We say the Responsibility Declaration and we talk of AA inclusivity. Is this our liberalism myth or ideology or is this a reality? 
if we are inclusive, if we are accommodating, to what do we attribute the variance and in statistics inside the rooms and the world just outside our AA doors? Michael Ignatieff writes, Myth is a narrative shaped by desire, not by truth, formed not by the facts as best as we can establish them, but by our longing for reassurance and consolation. Coming awake means to renounce such longing, to recover all of the sharpness of our distinction between what is true and what we wish were true. The warrior's honor refers to a James Joyce line from Ulysses. History is a nightmare to which I am trying to awake. With our emphasis on a spiritual awakening, this idea should be like old home week. Appendix 2, The Spiritual Experience, describes most of our spiritual awakenings as being gradual. Maybe it's a life's work to renounce our longing for assurance and consolation. Could it be that it's only human to surrender to self-constructed or mutually constructed realities that blot out the harsher truths? Constant vigilance is a more demanding master. To follow the natural order of things is to resign ourselves to the finitude of all good things. AA, like any society, will decay if we follow our natural tendencies. To fend off the inevitability requires more than lip service to our brand of democracy. It requires each of us engaging in our citizenry and rising to the challenge when anyone anywhere reaches out for help. For AA to be there in 2035, we have to be firm in our principles and flexible in our methods. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Rebellion Dogs Radio. RebellionDogsPublishing.com is where you can find us. From there, you can get to our Twitter. You can get to our Facebook page. We'd love to hear what you have to say. If you have thoughts, ideas, criticisms, or comments, we're listening. You can't unring a bell. You can't unsee what you've seen. We're going out with a band, some friends of mine, Rob Higgins, Neva Chow. They are dearly beloved. Great Toronto band. They're on the road a lot. Check them out online. Dearly beloved. And take broke motivation and calendar dreams. Countless positions to shape what you see. Hell can't escape. Come after your breaks and move on. These homemade transgressions and corduroy scenes. Age-old traditions, both hopeless and sweet. Go down swing. It's the moment that knows what you've done. It's the moment that knows what you've done. Bear with you, can move on. 
The band is called Dearly Beloved. Good message for today's show. Thanks for joining us on Rebellion Dogs Radio. This is episode five. We'll be back again soon. Please join us online. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Rebellion Dogs, our every step.